0: Hello, this is Dr. Gary Sherman, The Heart Guy, and I welcome you to our exciting and informative podcast titled The Heart Guy Presents The Heart of the Matter, bringing you interesting discussions and conversations related to the vast and important subject of heart disease and heart failure and everything related to that in today's ever-changing world. I'm extremely honored to have as my special guest an amazing leader in the medical and global organ transplant community, Ms. Sharon Simpson-Rouse. Sharon is a coordinator for the Charles County Public Schools in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. Sharon is an experienced leader with a demonstrated history of working in the primary education industry, skilled in program coordination, leadership, community outreach, classroom management, and curriculum development. Sharon is a strong educational professional with an administrator certification focused on educational leadership and administration. A native of Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, she has dedicated her life to influencing the world as a kidney disease dialysis and now transplant survivor. Sharon actively shares her story to bring hope and healing to anyone facing difficult circumstances in life. To expand the scope of her reach, Sharon founded Kindness for Kidneys International Incorporated, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating, encouraging, and empowering kidney warriors and their families. Sharon currently lives in Maryland with her husband, Sean, and daughter Kyla. Sharon, I'm pleased to welcome you to the heart of the matter.
1: Oh, thank you so much for the kind words and the awesome introduction, yeah, Gary. Yeah, I just hope um, I
0: got it right, that's all. <laughs> oh, you got
1: it perfect. It, it's, it was awesome, and I, I'm truly privileged and honored to be here with you today. Yeah,
0: thank you. Well, the pleasure is mine. Um, so I figured we'd start at the beginning. So tell us a little bit about your childhood. Where'd you grow up, and, uh, and what, if any, wonderful experiences or challenges uh, that you might have had to face growing up?
1: So um I grew up in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. I'm about 30 minutes outside of D.C. And actually where we live, it's kind of like it takes about five minutes to get to each part of uh, Maryland, D.C. or Virginia. Yeah. So I'm kind of in the middle there. But if you're talking about downtown D.C., we're about 30 minutes outside of that. And so um grew up, I had a pretty normal life. Uh, my parents were, um, you know, we worked, they worked in, in education. My mom's a teacher. My dad uh, actually, he started in education and then ended and found himself in construction management and so now owns his own construction company. We had a normal life. I have... Um, Three siblings, two sisters and a brother, and we grew up, all grew up in this area. Um, two, Three of us still live here, and now my one of my family members uh, moved to Ohio. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, had a pretty normal life. I, I didn't have, I wouldn't say I had any major life changes as a child, Um Uh, my parents uh, are no longer together now, but uh, we had a pretty normal life growing up. And I went to public school, I went to private schools through eighth grade, and then went to uh, public school and ninth um, through 12th grade. And so normal life I was active in uh dance and and some of the other things bowling we we did several activities being a being a a child of an educator you you know you get to experience a lot especially in the summertime and so my mom would dedicate the summers to taking us to museums and signing us up for bowling leagues and, and sending us to camps and all of those types of things so relatively normal life great parents um wonderful family. We are close knit family here. And, and so our, our childhood was, was awesome actually. And, and even through trials and, and tribulations and tests that we would come up against, we were raised um, to have a strong faith foundation. And I think that that has been instrumental in our lives. Yeah.
0: And, and it shows in you. So congratulations to your parents. They, they clearly did a great job. Oh, um, thank yeah, you. And it's nice that you have siblings nearby and, and are close to them. That's special too. All that support around you. Very important. Yes. Yeah, it's good. It makes it better. So so you um, went on to uh, get your degree in elementary school education at Frostburg State University. Is that right?
1: Yes, yes. So it's about two and a half hours from, from where I live and wanted, to, wanted a change of scenery. It's beautiful there. It's in the mountains, a small school. Yeah. And so, yes, I, I actually stayed there through um, my bachelor's and my master's degree. Oh, ooh, so, wow. so, yes, I, I received my elementary an education degree and from there and then went on and got my masters of education in school counseling. So You
0: kind of always wanted to be a teacher because your your mom was a teacher, I guess. Yes.
1: I did and I I truly admired her and I I, I love children as well. I but it started with being in her classrooms especially if we were off of school and we could attend and sit in one of her classes yeah. we 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 really enjoyed it and so i i had two choice two two things that intrigued me as a child and it was nursing and education wow. but as i continued to grow older i realized that education was more of my calling and i truly enjoyed helping people so i knew that helping children where you are able to impart in them early on it's something that I still talk to some of my students today and we still um, you know are able to even now learn from each other many of them are adults but we we still are able to learn from each other and so I see that you know education has a lasting impact and it leaves a legacy that can't be erased
0: for sure and those were some of the happiest years of my life when my kids were growing up and i got to you know be part of and teach them a bit about writing and and things like that and life a little bit and they uh they did all those extraordinary things like music and sports and i was always there to to i always made time to to be there and i want i think that's important in parenting anyway i don't know what the magic formula is but i think showing up is pretty pretty much a good start, you know. Oh, so
1: yes, absolutely. And now we're doing that with my daughter. I have a daughter now, and so it's a lot of running. She's in competitive dance, and so we do a lot of running around with that and <laughs> just keeping up with school and some of the sports that she participates in school. So, yes, it, it, but it is an honor, and I realize that it goes so quickly that I try to enjoy each moment because... She's she's already in ninth grade, and it's hard to believe that. And so we want to enjoy every moment because we know that that is not always going to be the case.
0: Yeah. I, you know, one of the lovely things is I, I coached my second son's uh, soccer team for uh, 12 seasons, and many of his friends still come come and see me. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's great. Lifelong friends that we made by being involved in their lives a bit, you know, so that, that was yes. good. So, so you went on in your, with your master's to become a guidance counselor. Um, is that where you started to find that you were able to help young people uh, in their life's changes?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I started out as a classroom teacher, and I did that for about five years. And then I transitioned to being a school counselor. And um, I, I loved I loved teaching. I really did. But I really saw the impact that I could have as a school counselor because you're you're impacting the entire school. And mm-hmm. so doing my guidance lessons, meeting with small groups of children on particular issues, and being able to impact the entire school community, even the staff, because a lot of times we were training staff members and how to approach situations, how to deal with mental health crises in their classrooms, how to deal with behavior issues, and all of those types of things. I had a greater reach as a school counselor. It wasn't just me and 30 students in front of me that I was impacting, but as a school counselor, I was able to impact our our entire school culture and community, and so and then also partnering with outside communities to bring in those resources to our school. I really really enjoyed. Um, that was probably my all time favorite job <laughs> in education. Wow. Um, was being able to be a school counselor and, and be a resource for anyone that needed assistance in our in our building.
0: And, and you bring such a positive attitude toward it. I can just hear it in your voice. That's great. Uh, despite the challenges that it probably. You know, brought that job has a lot of challenges. You're dealing with yes. many different schools wow. and trying to, you know, get everybody on the same page. Parents, parents are tough to deal with. You know, so.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. But a lot of times, if you put resources in their hands and let them know that you're there for them, and and that you're not there for any ill will, but you're there to support them and be and lock lock arms with them and and really help them with their with their children. They, they typically come on board. Every now and again, you'll have that difficult one that's just hard to, to get to. But, but overall, most parents, if you're putting resources in their hands and you're helping them, they do eventually see the benefit, even if they're resistant in the beginning.
0: Yeah, yeah. So as an adult, you had your bout with kidney problems. How did, how did that unfold for you?
1: Yeah. So it's funny because actually I was a school counselor when it all started. And I woke up one morning with swollen legs and I it was in September of of 2006. I just had a baby girl in March of 2006. Woke up that morning. I thought, you know, I was tired because I back to school night and open house was the day before that night. So I got home late that night, but I noticed that there was swelling in my legs. And I thought, well, maybe it was because I was walking around and the hard floors and urine heels, and showing parents where to go to, for their children. Um, and went to bed thinking, OK, the swelling is going to go down. My legs are elevated. I'm getting rest. And then woke up the next morning and the swelling had actually gotten worse. It actually started coming up to where my thighs are. And I realized, well, this this isn't normal. And so I I, I felt OK. So I still got up. I got dressed, went to work. And, and thought that the day would, you know, go to normal. And so got to work and I decided to ask the school nurse at the time what, what he thought was going on. And I went to his office and I said, hey, you know, I woke up this morning with swollen legs. What do you think is going on? And he said, well, I think you need to go to the emergency room right away. And that wasn't the answer I wanted to hear because I had a whole day plan I had new student orientation for our new students and I had food that I purchased for them. And so I, I I really didn't want to go to the emergency room, and I said, "Okay, well, I'll wait and go after after work." And he said, "No, you need to go now." Yeah, I will say just a now. little background history on that. Um, yeah. I was diagnosed with lupus in two thousand three. Never really felt that I had lupus, but I felt like you know the doctors had done years worth of testing and everything, and they and I had some swelling in my hands in two thousand two. So they after a year of testing. And looking at my ANA numbers, they concluded that it was lupus. After I took the first round of meds that they prescribed, I never had any issues after that. So here we are in 2006. They're thinking, she just had a baby. Maybe her lupus is now, you know, reactivated and it's now active. And this is why her kidneys are failing. So I went to the emergency room and that's when they said, your kidneys are failing. And I'm thinking, really? I'd never had any kidney issues before. And none of my labs showed anything in, in regards to kidneys, but I later found out that most times it doesn't show up in your labs until you're in, in the final stages anyway. And so, um, I was going to say, so
0: how does the, how does kidney disease manifest itself besides the swelling in the legs? Are there other symptoms that you get from kidney disease?
1: Yeah. So fatigue, um, sometimes loss of appetite, uh i would say for me that the swelling and the fatigue were were the the symptoms that i really remember and again because i worked in a school system i just felt like and i was a new mom i had just gone back to work i had been out since i had my daughter in march through the summer and so you know at the end of august i ended up going back and i thought maybe that it was just me getting back into the groove of everything i i didn't think that i was that there was anything wrong with my health i thought that Hey, I'm just really tired from from getting back into work and having a newborn, and just all of those things that come with that. And so, I, d- I never really suspected anything else was going on. I'd actually gone to my rheumatologist, who I had been seeing because since the lupus diagnosis in 2003, I continued to see my rheumatologist just just as you know, just as a precautionary measure and making sure that my numbers and everything remained okay. And I had seen him. I, I saw him two weeks before all of this happened. And so I went back and even looked at my labs then and my creatinine, which is their numbers that are usually they look at your filtration rate and your creatinine numbers for your, for your kidneys to know how they're doing. And they were in the normal range. And so, um, so when this happened, I went to the emergency room. They said, your kidneys are failing. We need to find out why. We feel that it's probably lupus related because you just had a daughter five months ago and your body's responding. Um, but when they did the biopsy, Gary, it, it turns out that it was FSGS kidney disease and that the, the cell pattern in my kidneys were not representative of lupus, but rather focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. And so that, that is when a part of your kidney cells become scarred. And so, you know, I, I, it's it's a rare condition. It's not one. Um, usually kidney disease is caused by high blood pressure and diabetes. So I didn't have those things. I didn't have a family history of diabetes or high blood pressure. So th- it was something that I was completely oblivious to. I I didn't have the blueprint because it wasn't a family related illness. And so they 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 were still kind of teetering i was at a hospital where the rheumatologist and the nephrologist were working together and they were still oh kind of teetering on is this really lupus or is this really kidney related and so they they decided to do after a year um they decided to do another another biopsy just to make sure and so the biopsy that second biopsy confirmed that yes this is fsgs kidney disease
0: Yeah, and and it's interesting because it's not so cut and dry. You know, we don't often, even the doctors have to really uh, go a long way to finally figure out what a particular, uh, what the particular problem is uh, in somebody. It's not not that easy to diagnose all the time. Yes. There's a lot of confusing symptoms. There's a lot of overlap with uh, heart failure, actually, because the main symptoms that I've had are also swelling and uh, fatigue and uh, difficulty breathing for me. I guess that's a, that's one that's a little more heart related. Yes. But um, those symptoms all the time are things that uh, my doctors are looking at for me, especially the swelling and the fluid uh, control. Um, yes. They're, they're they're watching that on on me all the time. So the kidneys and the heart are intimately related. Uh, you know, I, th- I guess it's all related, but especially. Yes. They're always watching my kidneys, and they talk more about my kidneys, I think, than my heart at this point. Wow.
1: Uh, wow. Yeah, one thing so, I thought so. about, too, um, and I apologize for interrupting if you weren't finished. No, that's fine. Uh, one thing that I remember also, and this could be for someone that may be listening, is that I was spilling protein in my urine, and even though that's representative of some of the symptoms related to lupus... And I also realized too, that that's also a side effect of your kidneys uh, or your kidneys not functioning the way that they should be because your, your, your kidneys are designed to filter those things. And so you shouldn't, you shouldn't be, uh, you shouldn't be spilling protein in your urine. And hmm. so I think my doctors, my rheumatologist, he probably thought that because of the lupus, it, it was all because of that. But in actuality, uh, it was, the FSGS and my kidneys were not filtering the pro- the protein uh, appropriately, which it should do because there should be no spillage in your urine. And so I, I always caution people and I tell them if you're spilling protein in your urine, please have them check your kidneys. <laughs> because I you're remember even back through college, them saying, oh, there was a trace of protein in your urine, but it should be fine. Sometimes that happens. Never, no one ever considered the kidneys at all. And I know now this is 20 plus years later, but now there's more protocols in place to make sure that if, if protein is being spilled, that the kidneys are being considered. But I, I realize now that, that the FSG, FSGS could have been there all along and it just didn't manifest until you know much later. Kidney disease a lot of times can be lying dormant. And and you not know that you have it because the symptoms don't appear typically until you're in the final the stage three through five. Right. If, if there's a mild case, most times it's, uh, unless you get a biopsy, you won't know that. And biopsies aren't just readily done. They, they the doctors typically do them when they have a serious reason to think that there's something wrong there.
0: Yeah, and also, I was going to say, when you're as productive as you are, you kind of push through those yes. symptoms and, you know, ignore them, not necessarily ignore them, but, you know, tell yourself that you can work through them yes. when you really need the help. So we don't recognize it until it gets a little bit worse.
1: Yes, that and that's so important. And I learned very quickly to be aware of what I felt in my body and to not just push it to the side and not to... to to think, oh, I'm just tired. You know, if I'm extremely tired, I need to have that checked out to make sure even if it's iron related or hemoglobin related, it should be at least checked into to make sure there are no serious issues going on.
0: Yeah, wow, so interesting. Uh, you gave us so much education as far as this goes. I, I learned a lot already. Oh, so no, no. <laughs> thank no, Thank you. thank you for this. Well, you're a teacher. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, I should have known.
1: That's all <laughs> um, I know.
0: So if that's not enough, you're, you're the executive director of Kindness for Kidneys International, which you created. Uh, could you share with me what your why is for having started that organization? I, I mean, I know that you went through this, but it's got to be more than that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So, so my first day walking in, so uh, fast forward from 2006, they were able to give me medication um, to keep my kidneys at bay. But in 2012, they took a significant turn for the worst. And so uh, I ended up on dialysis, going going to a center three times a week. Now, mind you, I was still working full time. By this time, I was in another mm-hmm. school system as a resource teacher. And I was still going to work full time at everything. And and so then they took a turn for, work, for the worst in 2012. And I was told that I needed to go on dialysis. And so Mm. as you can imagine, I was devastated. I went through several emotions. I always tell people when you get that initial diagnosis, it is you almost experience a grieving process because your life as you know, it is going to change when you Mm. have to go and sit in a chair for four hours, three times a week. It it, it completely changes your your whole outlook on life and the things that you're going to have to do. But at that point, I needed to be on the machine because that was the life support at that point until I was able to either get a transplant or something significantly changed. And so I found myself walking into a dialysis facility in June of 2012 and the day that I walked in there, it completely changed my life. I, I just had no idea. because Again, I didn't have any relatives that had ever been on dialysis that I was aware of. And so walking into that facility, it, it completely changed my life. And I vowed on that day that I would not sit in that chair and not use my experiences to help other people. Wow. I felt like if I was sitting in that chair, there was a reason beyond me. And that I, you know, I had faith that when I, when I was able to do so, that I would learn what I could just based on my experiences and then use that to help other people. And so I would sit in the dialysis chair and, and just, you know, like I want to help people and just look around me and see. Now I, I definitely had a great great care team at my facility, but I also heard of different facilities and how that the care wasn't as great as mine was. And so I, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've developed relationships with other patients that were there and then also the, the technicians and the doctors and nurses that worked there. Um, we, we I was really able to just talk to them, find out what's going on. I learned when i was in the hospital that i had to, had to be my own advocate i couldn't just show up and allow them to do all of the work but i had to look at it as if we were partners in my care not right. me just coming and saying well whatever the doctor tells me to do i know i i learned my body i knew what i i thought i needed and i did the research and i looked at them as a partner in my care and so, um, so that's where Kindness for Kidneys was born. I didn't have a name for it or anything like that, but I would sit in the dialysis chair and say, "I would love to help other people, especially people like myself that are African Americans or, or minorities in in, a, in the community." I, I wanted to make sure that I would was a voice and that I. Uh, could encourage and empower people that were going to face similar situations like mine. And so the only way to do that is to get involved and to to be active in the community. And that's how I started out after, um, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself with the story, but uh, but but kindness for Kidneys was born out of my experiences sitting in a dialysis chair and just thinking and seeing, you know, just, I, I even had the privilege to travel at times and And I would go to other facilities. So I've gone to a women's conference with my church in Florida. And so I had an opportunity to go to another facility. And I know I'm saying opportunity, but I learned so much. So I had to get my treatment done while I was there. And so then I would go into a Florida facility and just see the care and treatment there and learning different things about my body and how much my body could take with being on the machine and knowing that, hey, I could say, "Hey, I, I'm still urinating," you know. So a lot of times when you're when your kidneys fail, you stop urinating, and so mm-hmm. I was still urinating throughout the process. So when I would go to treatment and they'd say, "Hey, we need to take a, off two kilos of, of fluid," I'm like, "But I'm still going to the bathroom," and 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 so you know, just things that I learned along the way, so that I could advocate for myself and even those around me, even being able to speak to them and say, "Hey." You might want to ask about this, this and this that I noticed or I heard them saying this to you about your treatment. Why don't you ask about this? And so just the, that that's where Kindness for Kidneys was born is just out of my desire to want to change the narrative surrounding kidney disease, especially in brown communities. And just yeah. knowing that, you know, you are just as important in your health care as your doctor is. It's not up to the doctor to just dictate to you what's going to go on with you and your body and the medications that you're going to take. But you can be empowered to find out information for yourself so that you then partner with the doctor and, and together you come up with the best plan for you.
0: Yeah. And, you know, this notion of uh, self-advocacy is so important today. Uh, and also, it's, you know, there's a lot of knowledge available to people more than there ever was before you know obviously we have our computers and google and all that so we can and television which yes. informs us for better or worse <laughs> yeah. but um i could say i could say there's both sides to that but there is a lot of information out there that allows people to make the best decisions for themselves knowing how they're feeling and informing their doctors and questioning uh, their treatment. Uh, And and it's important to know. It's important to know that there is a spectrum of the doctors that are out there and hospitals even uh, run differently. So you have to go to a place where you're comfortable and you deserve that as a patient. So the notion of self-advocacy. The other thing that you mentioned that is really important is that you can have a change in your life and still have a good life. Yes. Um, you know you've had to learn to live differently at times in your life through this disease and you've always looked at the positives and 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 you know you was you were sitting there in dialysis wondering what you can do for people I mean that's mm-hmm. that's a wonderful attitude as opposed to turning inward and just you know kind of feeling sorry for yourself It's not good to go through disease you know yes. uh, especially serious disease I know that. But we have to, you know, we have to come come out of this and say, yeah, how how can we help others? And if you can do that, boy, you can really change the world, uh, as you have. This is great. I mean, I'm, I admire you so much for everything that you've done. What would you like our listeners to know about Kenyan liver donorship? What can we do to support this cause?
1: Absolutely. So, um, we do have our website, kindnessforkidneys.org. We actually just started a take a stand collection and promoting self advocacy and promoting that, you know, regardless of what's going on in your life, you can still show up in your, in the best version of yourself, that you don't have to be defined by your, your situation. Your situation mm-hmm. is just a pit stop in your destination. And so that's what our take a stand collection is all about. And we also have support groups as well. And so when, when it comes to, organ donation. The key is, and what I'm finding in speaking to families and patients and those that have been impacted by organ failures is that education is key. Knowing that, you know, I, I don't have to stop at a no at one hospital. I can go to another hospital is important. And so I'm finding that getting the education and getting the facts is is key to to going to the next level in your care. For my sister and I, my sister was my kidney donor. And God bless her. She is a wonderful person. She is my angel and my hero and everything. Um, but she stepped up without me even ha- having, without me even asking her to to donate a kidney. She knew that I was going on dialysis. She said, "Hey, well, what, what, how can I help? What, what do I need to do?" And so she didn't have the information, but she does have the heart to give. And so she wow. she went and got tested, and we found out that she was a match. But our journey—it was still a year—and before we ended up on the hospital bed <laughs> together. Yeah, yeah, um, and, wow. and it was because we, there were many pit stops along the way. And so I do want to encourage listeners, if you are seeking a, a donor, whether it's a living donor or a deceased donor, that you don't, that you not stop when you get, when you hit those struggles along the way, there were a lot of pitfalls and then just struggles that we had to overcome. But the key was we kept going. And, and the days that I felt like giving up, she's like, no, we're doing this. We're going forward with the surgery and then vice versa. And she's like, I don't understand what's going on. And for a while in our journey, they were um there were the, the first the first uh, struggle was me developing shingles two weeks before our surgery. So that pushed it back. And then it got pushed back again because my sister's hemoglobin levels were teetering between normal and uh, slightly below normal. And they wanted to make sure that her blood levels were going to be the way that they needed them to be after surgery and beyond, that something wouldn't happen further down the line. And so that's another area of organ donation. If you're a living donor, they're going to make sure you're in optimal shape. In order to be a viable candidate. So they're not going to put you on the operating table without doing a physical, mental and emotional, I would say a physical, mental and emotional thorough check of what, you know, just making sure you're a viable candidate. And so I tell people that also, like, if there's something wrong with you, you're not going to make it to the operating table that's a myth, you know, that something's going to happen to you and they do everything in their power. Now, granted, I'm sure there's a small percentage of things that that go unnoticed and that's probably very, very small, but they will make sure that the candidate is, is is a great match for you and that if something were to happen to to my sister you know that, that they would they would intercept before it even gets to that point and so th- that's another thing when it comes to organ donation especially living organ donation you you're going to have to go through a series of of tests and and all kinds of things to get to that table and th- and that shouldn't deter you i mean it's, it once you make your appointments you show up and do what they're asking you to do just to make sure that everything is ruled out and then also in in case of cases of organ donation she is now, because she's been a, kid, a kidney donor to me, if she ever, God forbid, needs a kidney herself, she's mm-hmm. automatically at the top of the list. Top of
0: the list. Yeah, yeah. i heard that. And that's least.
1: something that some people worry about. Well, what happens if I need my kidneys? And it's like, well, you really only need one. And then also, if you, by chance, have that happens, then you're going to be at the top of the list regardless because you have decided to to give this selfless gift to someone.
0: That's certainly so, selfless. I mean what's what's more selfless than yes. that? And it is interesting that you mentioned that. Obviously I'm more involved with heart transplant I'm waiting for a heart myself. Uh, so but with with uh, living donation, the kidney donation I should say, it's two people that are that have to be, you know, in top shape to to get this thing done. Yeah, it's interesting. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes, and one thing with kidney donation as well. Uh, yes, you're, you you have two kidneys and you're giving one away, but when that happens, the kidney that is left it becomes hmm. larger and it takes pretty much the 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 place of the two kidneys that were there. And so I always I always tell people that as well. Just just I, th- I feel like when you arm yourself with information, then you can make informed an informed decision. decision. Yeah many times we make premature decisions without all of the information. And so having that information and knowing what's involved, knowing that it's laparoscopic for a kidney transplant is important. In the past, they would cut out a rib and do all kinds of stuff to get to give a kidney, but now it's laparoscopic. And so for my sister, she was able to go home a few days after because, again, she just had small incisions um, in her stomach. And and so, information is key in organ donation. And even if it's registering to be an organ donor after you're gone, that's, you know, it's just important to know what actually takes place after you're gone, you know, and how you can save up to eight or nine lives with, with your, your organs, um, your eye and, and your tissue. You can, well, more than that, but I think those are the main areas that they can pull from, but you can save multiple people. Just being an organ donor, a pun Yeah, we can't device. say enough
0: about signing up to be a donor. Uh, you know, in this country, we have uh, opt-in, uh, and that is different than in yes. other countries where they're opt-out. That is everybody's in automatically unless they want to opt out, which is which makes it better. I think it's a better system. But we have the system we have, mm-hmm. which uh, you know puts upon the person to sign up online or at the DMV. Uh, for, to be a donor, and they can save so many lives, as you yes. mentioned. Uh, I, I've heard statistics uh, that range from uh, five to fifty people that can be saved by one person who is a donor. So yes. it's amazing. Um, yes. So you know, I mean, and I can see the teacher in you. It's it's been so great. You make everything sound sounds so clear. Uh, these things are complex. Oh yet you uh, made it so understandable for us today. I really do appreciate this. We could go on and on, and hopefully we'll do this again, because I'm going to have a million questions for you. But what are you hoping (laughs) to do this spring as uh, the nice weather comes? We lift ourselves out of this pandemic, hopefully.
1: Oh, man, I'm hoping to get out a little more. Right now I'm I'm actually in transition and and really – pumping up Kindness for Kidneys and getting it to uh, and involve, involving more people in our on our board and in our staff. So I'm going to spend a great deal of the summer doing that. And then just uh, we're hoping to at least get away to a beach or something. Um, as a transplant recipient, va- vaccinated or not, I still have to be on alert, as you may have seen in the news. And so, um, and then even on the CDC's website and things like that, I'll still have to practice co- precaution until this is kind of settled down because even after being vaccinated you you are still susceptible just because I'm on immunosuppressive Absolutely, medication yeah. and so I have to make sure I take those precautions but I'm I'm looking forward to using some of the quietness of the summer where I'm not running my daughter to school and all of that to really um, position kindness for kidneys for our next level. And so I'll be doing a little bit of that, hopefully stealing away to someone's yeah, beach <laughs> as we get closer to the summer and just enjoying our time. Um, time is, life is but a vapor. And so <laughs> I, I want to use the time that I have left on this earth to wow. make the most of it. And, and whether that's spending time with family, making an impact, helping people that are newly diagnosed with kidney disease, those have have had kidney disease for 20 or 30 years. There's also something, there's always something that you can gain and glean from from connecting with the community. So,
0: oh my good for you! Good for you. That sounds good. Sounds like a plan. It's good to plan a little hope. Yes. Um, I, you know, I write a lot and I've been informed by my writing mentors that what you need to do to get people to turn the page is to inform confirm beliefs and inspire people. And you've done all of those things for us today. So I thank you for that. Yeah, it's great. So that's why I would stay in this conversation a long time. Um, You know, uh, Sharon is a person who continues to adapt and find ways to positively contribute to our global organ donation community. On behalf of myself and our listeners, I thank you so much for all that you've done for our global community and your incredible dedication to your work with Kindness for Kidneys International and for sharing this time with us. I hope we can do this again soon.
1: I hope so too, Gary. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You are truly yeah. a great host yourself. You made this conversation <laughs> easy for it. me. So <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate you. The same, the same you.
0: goes for me. Uh, that's my podcast for today. Please join me, Dr. Gary Sherman, the Heart Guy. Next time for an, another intriguing, informative, and entertaining conversation, please visit our website at www.drheart2heart.net. That's D-R-H-E-A-R-T, the numeral 2, H-E-A-R-T.net, for upcoming podcasts. Or if you'd like me to host an online presentation for your group or organization, If you'd like to be a guest on The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter podcast, please email me at theheartguyspeaks at gmail.com. Our podcast can be found on Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify. You just have to search The Heart Guy and you'll find it. Uh, This is Dr. Gary Sherman, wishing you peace and hope.